Skippo, let's do this. Three. Let's do this. Two. two one. one. Let's, let's go! go! Ben Davis. All right. I am the host of the PB Podcast, Troy Tittlemeyer, joined by, of course, Skips, the co-host, came in uh, a little late on this one. He claims he didn't get the link, uh, and that's probably true. And uh, and we had the opportunity to sit down with Mr. Ben Davis and, of course, Stan Keith, our technical advisor, chief technical officer, uh, chief geoscientist. Uh, I don't know, whatever we want to call Stan. He's got the experience and a lot of... I've been uh, called lots of things. <laughs> numerous ideas. That gets the curiosity going. And that's uh, that was the main point of this show. I, I, I we, we drove by the talc mines heading to the WTGS event a few months ago. And uh, and I that's when it, it just occurred to us, like, we, we got to figure out what's going on there. So I put out a post saying, does anybody have anybody, know anybody, that uh, doesn't that knows anything about this talc? situation over here and uh it was actually uh pat welch who attached you to a post and said uh just your name and i was like no way you know of course ben davis and, and then you said yeah i did my thesis on there oh man what a great opportunity to catch up to say i wish you well i hope uh christmas and and new year's as it approaches is uh is going well for you and your family how are you ben I'm doing well, and we're excited about Christmas, too. <laughs> good. All right. You look well. That's good. Skippo, how are you? Good, good, man. Just getting ready for the holidays and, you know, just winding the year down, man. Yeah. I was uh, I was trying to do the same, but unfortunately, not not completely tragic news, but definitely some a bummer. Uh, my dad, who's 63 years old and uh, loves riding freaking dirt bikes, crashed yesterday, snapped his leg, Compound fracture out of the ankle is what we're getting. This is the report. We He doesn't have his phone, so he goes into surgery. My mom's trying to get into the hospital. She can't get in because she doesn't have the jab card, and they, they don't have a test to say that she's negative. Oh, Christ. And the report is he's got a freaking rod and some plates. He snapped both tib and fib right below the knee uh, and at the ouch. and above the ankle, and supposedly the bones in the ankle – uh, made their way out, which I am oh, very familiar shit. with in my experience of dirt bike racing. So, yeah, Tittlemeyer household, man, man, ah, you know everybody's in, you know worried, and and uh, he made it through surgery last night. So they said, you know, he's he's laid up and trying to recover at the hospital today. Uh, still doesn't have his phone, I guess. Uh, you know, trying to get through that fiasco, but freaking holidays, man. You know what the hell? Dirt bikes, dude. Well, I'm. Sorry to hear about your father. I'm glad that he got through the surgery and, you know, at least it was just the ankle. It wasn't like a head or the back or anything like that. And, and almost luckily, I mean, complete, I mean, as terrible as that is, I mean, it's almost better than, you know, just like standard compound fracture. Cause just putting a plate in it and, you know, getting into like physical therapy as soon as possible is right. a lot easier than, you know, nursing something and then oh wait it didn't heal right and then they got to re go in and then re-break it because like i know friends that have had happened to oh, before yeah. And yeah that's miserable so yeah no I mean, was from the doctor said uh surprised that you know some of the bigger pieces came back together pretty good he said so it wasn't like a clean break it sounded like he was having to deal with some you know pieces of bones that he had to oh, play man. back together and, and rot up 63 man i i just he loves riding, but I don't know. We'll see what happens. That might be it for him. Yeah, that might be. It's a big wake-up call. 
Yeah, to yeah. say the least. To say the least. So dealing with that, uh, going into it, but happy, healthy. Uh, Christmas is here. New Year's is here. 2022, any big plans for either of you guys uh, as far as 2022 goes? What's what's the haps? What's the latest? Um, You know, they put me in charge as general chair for the Southwest Section AEPG Conference. Oh, no. Uh. <laughs> yeah, you can thank Pat Welch. I showed up to this meeting and Pat's like, asking me all these questions. I'm like, Pat, I was the poster chair. And he's like, no, you're the general chair. So battlefield promotion, but it'll be here. Uh, so we're doing a lot of work. It'll be here in uh, Midland, May 2nd through the 4th. Cool. It should be a good conference. So that's uh, mostly what I'm working on for the first half. Man, yeah, that's a lot of work, dude. I mean, you got a good staff there in Midland. There's always good volunteers that can help. You know, you find the papers or the posters. You find the presenters. Uh, I'm sure Sam's going to be there helping with uh, with finding all the sponsor money, you know, to, to make that happen. So the team there in Midland is uh, what 96th year we're going into WTGS. So that's that's cool. Southwest Section General Chair, man. Yeah, that's uh, a lot of meetings. A lot of meetings. Yeah. <laughs> Stan, any big plans for 2022? You going to go to Outcrop? <laughs> Yeah, and a road cut. <laughs> <laughs> we got to go do a talc mine, Stan. Come on. Let's well, yeah, but that's easy enough. I can step up to a talc bench, talc dump, but I'm not going to scramble up a talc vertical no, no wall. No, no death marches? <laughs> no. Oh, okay. All right. I've well, had too many rollovers. My knees are pretty, <laughs> you know, I've, I've had some wake-up calls in my knee department, so. Yeah. Harder for me well, to get around. Yeah, well, my knees. But my are still brain good, is so still I can, working. I can do that. I can do that for you. I can be <laughs> your knees, and as long yeah, as the brain still works. A, I'll tell you what the rock is and all that bullshit. <laughs> <laughs> Don't pick up that rock. Pick up this rock. Pick up, uh, stand, you pick up the wrong rock. What uh, What dropped out for you today with our conversation and getting to know Ben a little bit and and going to his thesis a little bit? Well, he basically rubber stamp, but he won't admit to that. Uh, the armchair observation that there could be a basement connection between hydrothermalism and the overlying basins. And since that happens to be right on the southwest edge of the gigantic Permian story, I'm just wondering how much of that trickles over into the, a right. few miles to the northeast and is sitting under the Permian. Are you familiar with anybody that's drilled deep uh, Delaware in the basement, anything like that, pulling up rock real deep from the west side of the west? Uh Delaware? God, no, not really. I mean, you know, I worked some of the concho acreage on the west side of the Delaware, and none of those guys really went deep because it gets, you know, you have the Apache that lifts things up. I mean, at the strong level, that's a, a 2,000 foot throw on that fault out there. Um, and so it does bring it up. And I think there's maybe one or two wells that went down into the pre Cameron and they were old, deeper wells. Uh, gosh. Not really off the top of my head. You know, there's been some new ones in the Midland Basin from mm -hmm. various companies. And I actually got to see some of the cuttings on that. And, you know, it was kind of interesting. It looked like granite wash with some, like, um, chloride schist. Um, mm -hmm. But, yeah, the Delaware, no. It'd be awesome to see somebody actually. Any hydrocarbon really, shows it, in those basement rocks? I didn't see anything that looked, no. I didn't see any fluorescence or anything like that. Okay. Um, we actually part of the like you know glockenite or glock yeah glockenite 
in, um, you know, the Camden kind of section, probably. The base of the elevator. And then base you picked the up, so you could see yeah. the. That's typically where it is. Yeah. And so you get it through the base, and then you pick up uh, this kind of like green looking stuff. And I like to say, I thought it was a chloride schist because it was much more shiny than the glauconite. Mm. Um, you know, the, and the glauconite is usually town, um, lion mountain formation, which is kind of a Cambrian formation out and um, stuff like that. So it's kind of a weird, like, you know, it was cutting, so it's kind of hard to tell what, what's coming from where. Was it shiny dark green? Yeah. That could be clinochlor. Clinochlor yeah, chloride. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. Cool. And if it yeah. is, you is, you have a marker for what we call UDH, ultra deep hydrothermal. So, yeah. Yeah. I mean, it could be, it could be like, yeah, a lot of stuff associated with that pegmatite and whatnot. Oh, yeah. yeah kind of it could be any number of things. But uh, right, on, right on. Skippo, what dropped out for you, man? Uh, for me, it was the kind of like this. I mean, talking about just the evolution of like how these fluids migrated through these rocks and changed them. And specifically when you were talking about that dike and just how it just got blasted by this fluid. And all of a sudden now it's like it goes to more of like that albite, quartz, magnesium. And it's just like, hey, what is the timing of all of these different inclusions and how is that affecting the other rocks within the area as well? Right. Because, I mean, you're only seeing it on site, but, you know where else is this taking place and how is it affecting, you know, the other host rock in the area? But yeah, it was awesome. Uh, learned a ton, learned an absolute well, I'll, I'll just about. throw in, I'll universalize, um, that observation a little bit. Uh, we've seen the same thing under oil field provinces in Montana, in Southwest Montana with talc mines, same thing in New York mm -hmm. under the, um, Utica shale, you got, uh, uh, stuff coming down from the Adirondacks, and um, and also a regional scale example of that would be in Norway. We've looked at a lot of what we call UDH complexes, yeah. which is what you've got at all the makings of one at Van Horn. Yeah, Troy, what dropped out for you, man? <sighs> man, I uh, I thought the potential structural relationship and how mineralization in the talc deposits there at the surface could represent maybe how the mineral deposits of the subsurface in the Permian Basin could be putting themselves together and maybe have a little bit of a blueprint of something to expect or maybe something to look out for uh, as we explore the subsurface in the Permian. And that might not have completely dropped out and crystallized in this one talk, but I think the other thing is just going from the Lano that uh, Lano front that lines up with the Abilene gravity minimum that lines up with the Nakazari slab tear that cuts right across the Texas shear zone. And we see that the Texas shear zone having an influence on a lot of the Permian. You know, I think we have maybe a good starting point to technically start from and see if we can maybe uh, crystallize something out along the way of, of a deep to seep, model right and we can start here go from the deep work our way into the permian maybe along that lano front along that abilene gravity minimum and work our way from this point into more anomalous data in the permian to say yes there is uh definitely a contact or a connection between uh deep-seated faults or deep structures deep rocks old rocks and and the permian i think and magnesium charged metasomatism yeah yep so the brine story <laughs>
This episode is brought to you by Bell Geospace. Bell Geospace has the gravity data that you need in the Permian Basin to see the structures below your reservoir, to see the structures in the reservoir and above. It's all connected. It all has a lot to say and a lot to do with how much oil, brine, or gas you're getting. You need the data to make better wells. You got to contact Julianne Sharples, jsharples at bellgeo.com or go to bellgeo.com. Check out their data. Check out what they're providing in their FTG, full tensor gravity gradiometry. The data is very high resolution. We did an exciting show, episode 91 with Bell Geospace, interpreting some of that data. Contact them today. Drill better wells. Let's go. All right, then we are officially starting PBE Live with Ben Davis. As our, our focus, or certainly mine, is, uh, is one, to, to catch up with Ben Davis. I always get to see at the, uh, the conventions, few and far between these days, uh, and I always enjoy catching up and getting to see you. But uh, the other thing is, you know, your thesis on this talc deposit and, and, and how the fluids and the mineralization was actually moving through this talc and this Grenville orogeny far west side of the Permian Basin, you know, how does that relate to maybe the, the way you see the patterns of mineralization in the subsurface with all your experience? That's some a way that I started tying this together. I wonder if they move the same directions. Is it overly northeasterly mineralization or is it north northwest? How is it moving? You know, what did you see? Uh, your thesis was a great read, and I'll admit I didn't read every word of it, but I read a lot of it to get some background of kind of what you were addressing and maybe what some ideas were at the time of what was happening with the tectonics and and maybe these arguments that were happening, these intellectual debates of the tectonics that emplaced that talc mineralization. The age of it from me and Stan, as we started reading and thinking about this show, we're like, hold on. The age of the mineralization could be a lot younger than the rocks that it's in, which could be very interesting as we dive into those details later in the show. But in the conception of the PBE podcast, traditionally, as this is somewhat of a traditional show, we get to now sit back and listen to Ben Davis's story. When you first picked up the rocks, what got you fired up? How you ended up doing your thesis on this particular subject? You know, how what options did you have in school? Who were your major mentors? And then maybe just kind of rattle off some of those jobs you had in the Permian the past 10 years. And then we'll get into the drill down, which is your thesis, and specifically going into how can better understanding the talcs of West Texas help us explore or exploit uh, the reservoirs in the subsurface of the Permian? Floor is yours. Well, uh, you covered a lot of history there, Troy. Um, I guess starting off, you know, uh, this really began with the concept that, you know, you have these super cycles with these super continents building up, right? Well, in the late or in the early 90s, there were two papers that came out, one from Ian Dizel and one from Paul Hoffman, that discussed a concept of a regional or a um, Precambrian supercontinent that they called Rodinia, which is Russian for the motherland. Um, and Paul Hoffman was always, you know, he's a professor at Harvard and, and kind of the, the founding father of the snowball earth theory. Well, he's uh, the title of his paper was like, did, uh, did the breakout of Rodinia cause Gondwana? He had a really neat title on it. Well, my advisor, um, I did my master's thesis in this work when I was at UT Austin 
And my advisor was Sharon Mosier. Um, Sharon, after I left, subsequently became the dean of the department. And she is just a, a phenomenal field geologist. And she was trained in this like classic look at like high grade metamorphic rocks. So she kind of made her niche and living like unraveling these complexly folded Nysic terrains. Mm -hmm. um, and so when she got to UT Austin in the 80s, she went out and was looking around on a field trip with um, some of the great names in Texas, like Bill Mulberger was on this trip and whatnot. And nobody up to that point had really looked at multiple phases of deformation in the Llano uplift, which we'll get into a little bit more about how that relates. But she saw these multiple foliations and realized that there's a whole story untold there. So she subsequently put a bunch, like, I don't know, probably like 10 PhDs and a 15 master's thesis work out on the, on the Llano uplift and has really written the story on the Llano uplift. And then she was able to put um, two geologists out in the Creso mountain group. So I, you know, Van Horn sits like right here and then you have I-20 and south of I-20 is what we call the Creso mountains. And those are high grade metamorphic rocks. And they were thrust up along the steroids thrust over these low grade metamorphic sedimentary rocks that were going that, you know, host the talc. Um, kind of parallels I-10, just a little bit north of I-10, slightly west of Van Horn. Well, she had a, a PhD student just before I got there in about 2004. He graduated like 2002, 2003, named Stephen Grimes. And he had worked out a big chunk of the geology yep, um, in the rocks there on the southern part of, the, of I-20. And so, you know, so you see that big like tan, orange, yep, right in there. So all that southern part was his... PhD thesis, and it was a, and he got a couple phenomenally good publications out of it. Great structure, uh, really complexly folded, and he did a phenomenal job, like working it out. Um, and so when I got there, the one of the the talc deposits ended up in the care of a mineral company called Zemex, and uh, the geologist came out from the east, and he, you know, he, his name was Stephen Cox, and he was like. I don't know anything about these talc deposits. Most of the work's been done by master's thesis out of UT Dallas or UT El Paso in the 80s. Um, you know, like Gerard Edwards did a PhD from UT El Paso in the late 80s or early 80s. And uh, so it was really was not accessible publication. So he, he showed up almost literally, it's just great coincidence, about the same time I did at UT Austin. And said, hey, you guys want to do a field trip out and check it out? Well, my advisor, Sharon, was like, oh, there's nothing, there's no geology in the, to see up there. Well, he brought us in and they had actually mined these open pit talc mines through the thrust sheet. So you could see the thrust in some of these mines in three-dimensional wow. deals. And the geology was just like crazy. The mineralogy was crazy. My advisor was like, if you don't take this opportunity to work on this, you're an idiot. <laughs> so I was like... That's a very good thing. I don't want to be an idiot. I'll be glad to work on it. It was just, it was an awesome experience. And uh, so I, I spent about four or five months living in a trailer in Van Horn. Um, well, I, you know, and uh, out of the KOA, there's a really nice man who owns a KOA out there, uh, Mr. McBride, and he let me borrow one of their trailers in the back. So I lived in this trailer, drove out to the mines every day and just and field mapped in the mines. Um, Right on. That's long uh, before Bezos got there, huh? 
Yeah, so Bezos was actually, I was kind of worried about that because he was buying up all of the Baylor Mountains to the north. Um, and so there were some of my uh, colleagues at UT Austin that they were like Ned Payton, who I think is now at um, Matador. He was working on his master's thesis in there. Um, you know, there's a big fault in there. It's a monocline. And he was looking at how the sedimentation on the Wolf Camp, you know, was syntectonic. Anyways, he was, Bezos was buying all this stuff up. And fortunately at that time, Bezos hadn't shut it down like he has now. So yeah. Ted was able to finish his uh, master's thesis there. And they never got down to the top lines. Most of that is, um, there's a, a family called the McVeighs. They all, they're very old. They've owned one of the ranches. The, they call it the Red Rock Ranch. It's on the eastern side of the range. And they, they do these like Red Rock tours. If you ever go to Van Horn and want to go see it, you can, you know, get out there on their ranch and they drive you around the Van Horn sandstone, um, which is a middle Cambrian conformity sandstone on top of the Precambrian. They actually mined a lot of, of the Alamo. Yep. They mined a lot of the, the silver out of it. Um, the silver was mineralized in the, well, in, well I'm going to say tertiary shows my age on this one, but, uh, you know, like the Paleocene and stuff from the Quinton Mountains to the West. But anyways, yeah, so you can go out and, and tour the thing. Um, very nice, very nice family. Uh, so anyways, so it's either owned by the mining companies and you have to get access to that or you, you can go check out with them. Otherwise, everything's kind of locked down. And I think that kind of stopped Bezos from buying all the way down into almost. Wow. And then the Creso Mountain Group was owned is owned by a surgeon who lives in like Pennsylvania, he just wanted to own his own mountain range, I guess. So he bought the increases. Right on. Let's rock it back. What about the uh, just the idea of rocks, man, in your life? How the heck did you become a geologist? Why did you even think about geology going through school? How'd that happen? Well, I uh, my father was a petroleum geologist and uh, been able to work all over the world. He's had a phenomenal career. He ended it as a refugee with COVID in China. Um, we were over Thailand and Cambodia, right? As COVID was breaking out two years ago and he never got to go back to his house, him and my mom, cause they were in Thailand and it shut down by the time we were over there. So they ended up, uh, they ended up in retirement as refugees in Houston. Uh, but he, you know, I saw his career and how much like there was, you know, interactions with government policies and all the science. I was just, fascinating so i started off as a journalist major and then i uh know because i didn't think i was very good at science so i took a geology 101 class i got straight a's in that and realized i was better at memorizing rock names than i was at writing up articles so i switched my major i did my undergrad at university of utah and uh i had a great time up there i mean utah's like a textbook i mean you just go on hikes and you're like oh look that's in my textbook and that's in my textbook <laughs> you know just phenomenal geology and then uh and then of course ut austin working with sharon was just a one of the highlights so um so yeah it was kind of uh over after i took that first geology class which was at a community college in houston so right on that's where you're from originally you grew up in houston yep who'd your dad work for um, it's probably easier to say who didn't he work for. <laughs> Shit. Right on. What's your dad's name? His name is Craig Davis. Craig Davis. Right on. Does he write about, was he big in the APG and like putting out papers or he kind of under the radar and just a, a technical guy for many companies? Uh, he was a technical guy. He did a lot of 
he was very, very, very good at um, expiration. You know, companies would hire him and say, hey, we, you know, we want to be international. What do we do? So he would be like, all right, let's just start looking all over the world. And I mean, I don't think there's a country on the planet that I haven't mentioned with him that he hasn't been like, oh, yeah, we worked on this prospect over there. And, wow. You know, he's great stories from all of his travels. And so. Man, cool. I'm going to follow this one up with a podcast with your dad. <laughs> yeah, he, I think he's probably listening. So <laughs> <laughs> right on. Uh, okay, so then uh, you get out of grad school. Are you completely teed up on an opportunity to get in the oil and gas industry? I assume, uh, but that is also a question. <laughs> yeah. So I uh, had a couple. In I had an internship with Devin, and then I went and I interviewed for a what they call this ConocoPhillips Spirit Scholarship, and uh, I didn't get it, but. I hit it off with the uh, interviewer, a guy named uh, Chuck, and he was a big recruiter for ConocoPhillips at the time and written some really good papers. Very nice guy. Anyways, he interviewed me again um, for an internship, and I was actually in the middle of my field work, and they flew me from El Paso to Houston and then ran me through eight straight hours of interviews. Um, and then the next day I get this offer for a full-time job uh, with ConocoPhillips a year before I even graduated. Wow. Um, so it was kind of like a no-brainer because at the time I was, you know, I'm still married. But at the time I was married with, uh, I think we were on our third kid in graduate school living in this 600-square-foot apartment off of uh, Lake Austin Boulevard. So my wife having the prospect of me actually having a job was really exciting for her. Um, and then it was with ConocoPhillips, which is a phenomenally good company. And, you know, they had a great, like, you know, three to five year training program. Wow. And How did I got that a, go? Rub shoulders with some, like, just incredible geologists uh, at ConocoPhillips. And a lot of them still there. Um, of course, I was with Concho when they got bought out by ConocoPhillips. So that was kind of fun going through a buyout. Wait a minute. You're talking about like a year ago? Yeah, I happened, well, it happened at the beginning of this year, kind of in the spring, like February, March time frame. Oh, is that right? Yeah. So. Wow. Wow. Man, can you say anything else about the uh, the bio? Now, was I, I, here's my hypothesis about the bio. I feel like the Yeso and the Northwest Shelf was such a solid moneymaker for Concho that that plus the upside of making the unconventionals work better was why they bought everything. Is that true? Is that accurate? Is the ASO still just the absolute moneymaker for Concho or was? Well, you actually, you know, that Concho divested the ASO to a company out of Dallas about a year oh. before the buy. Shit. Um, well. <laughs> and uh, I think that, you know, the, the Permian's the king, right? You have so much infrastructure out here. You have 2,000, 3,000 feet of like source rock intermixed with you know, permeable sandstones, you could, you know, pretty much land anywhere and you're doing pretty well. I mean, there's just, you know, obviously nuances and stuff, you know, keeps us employed, but the, uh, you know, the Permian is just a phenomenally good area in Concho early on, you know, with Tim Leach and stuff, I think recognized that they wanted to be in the Permian even before the market recognized how good the Permian was. And, you know, by the time 2016 hit and there was this massive downturn, you only had about 16 counties in all of the United States that were drilling unconventionals, 16 counties. And I think nine of them were in the Permian. Wow. Um, 
And so that tells you just, you know, the, the vast wealth that the Permian holds in terms of uh, oil in place. And then, of course, you know, where we come in is the technical recoverable part of that oil in place. Um, but yeah, you know, you really, it's just in the core parts of the Permian, there's just really no place better to be in terms of economics. And so I think, you know, the fact that like ConocoPhillips has a, a large unconventional offshore presence, it was nice to buy into a company like Concha with almost a million acres in these unconventional plays yeah. to kind of help offset that decline rate that Concha was seeing on the, on the wells with a conventional decline rate. But here you have a huge upside on inventory um, is, you know, is my take and my opinion on it. Probably, you know, obviously people are like, wow, oh, I don't think Ben knows what he's talking about. No, but um so anyways, I think it was a good plan. I think that's the same reason they just recently purchased a portion of all of uh, Shell's assets in Loving County and stuff like that is just to cement their footprint in the Permian. Wow. So Jeez. I think it's it's a great it's a great place to invest. And it's you know, the core part of it's hard to get into. You have to basically buy a company because a lot of the acreage is pretty well um short up. So yeah. Well, let's uh, let's bring Skippo over. He was been he's been listening in as he was uh, late to come to the party. He might have a, a good excuse. We'll see. I'm going to promote him to panelist as he's shuffling in, and it's kind of up his alley. He likes this whole, uh, you know, uh, economic or uh, whatever you call it, the the business side of of what we do as well. He's always creative with that, so I'm sure he's got something to say about how Concho has. Uh, has done their deal with Conical Phillips with your, what you're talking about. But real quick question off the top of your head, a million acres somewhere around there. Is that 50-50 Midland Basin, Delaware? Is it per mo mostly Delaware? What was the what was the actual footprint there? Just roughly. That's a good question. I'd probably say it was more dominated on the Delaware side, but they have a very good Midland Basin presence. Okay. Um so, you know, though, I mean, it, it really goes back to, you know, on the Midland Basin side, you know, it was a it was a rimmed basin that was basically a starved basin that just accumulated all this amazing organic material. And I'm not talking like, you know, like the Jurassic in uh, Saudi Arabia where you're like sitting at like 15 or 20 percent TOC. But you just you accumulate like 3000 feet of all of this organic stuff in there because it was rimmed on all sides, either by uplifts and reefs or you know tectonic uplift to the south um and you know the texas monthly had that article that came out oh gosh like 10 years ago that talked about kind of the beginning and the origins of the play with jim henry and his company buying yeah. up they basically what they would do is they take a gamma ray log put a cutoff on it in the wolf camp section and if it had over 500 feet of clean carbonate they went and bought it you know <laughs> So they ended up buying all this acreage on the western part of the Midland Basin where you had this, you know, these debris shedding off from the Central Basin platform. And a lot of that acreage, you know, they that Concho then bought out Henry and then Henry sold some of it to SM, some of it to Concho, and they kind of broke it up. And then they were kind of a minority operator um, deals going on in there. And that's, you know, kind of a, kind of an interesting play on how that really got going. And then we, you know, of course, as we expanded out, we begin to realize, oh, hey, these shells are where you really want to be. They actually have a lot of porosity. They have a lot of poor throat sizes that almost sometimes match the carbonates. 
and they're easier to drill, they're easier to frack, we can move further out into the basin, and then next thing you know, the whole basin opens up, and you start seeing, you know, conference talks where they're like, hey, you got 20, you got 50 years of drilling out here in the Permian, and stuff like that, and so then, you know, of course, the Permian gets gets really excited, and so, you know, it's it's just been interesting, I can't believe how blessed I've been, just like, being able to sit and witness, you know, this shell revolution in 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 America for like the last 10, 15 years, um, and then, of course, you know, the Permian, a lot of what goes on in the basin corresponds to what we see on the margins of the basin. You know, all the debris flows that were coming off from the central basin platform and feeding that acreage that Henry was firing is somewhat analogous to what was going on over like in the Baylor Mountains when you drive like I-90 from Van Horn up into um, up into the Guadalupe's. You know, there's that mountain range on the, the Apaches, I think, and then Baylor's are to the south and it becomes the Apaches. You know, you get this monocline that comes up. Well, you know, it was happening at the same time during the early wolf camp. And so you get these debris flows and these big blocks that slide off that you could map and see in outcrop. And then you can go take it and you can uh, you say, oh, this is what we're seeing in the subsurface. Because you'd be correlating along and all of a sudden your log, you know, instead of being like a serrated, would be this nice big blocky, you know, limestone out of the nowhere and all the wells around it don't have it. And you're like, oh, this is a chunk that literally went room as you have these tectonic events that's um, certainly one idea right on yeah so anyways right. that was uh now a lot of that's from the precambrian tectonics it was the influence you know various zones of weakness so you see how i tied that back i <laughs> <laughs> see where you're going with that dave uh i mean <laughs> it's a davis like your, your last name ben um skippo you're joining us thanks for joining thanks for catching up was that on me the link was that me yeah, the, the link didn't work. <laughs> We're yeah. here now, though. We're here yeah. now, no. Better uh, late than never. We but are it was good. Ba- I, I was enjoying being a fly on the wall. Ben was blowing my mind with some of the shit that he was saying. So right? loved it. Yeah. Yeah, dude. Uh, and now it's going to be even more fun because we're going to tie your thesis work and kind of maybe what you've been seeing or uh, what, yeah, what correlates just generally with what you were seeing out there in your thesis work, this structure, this old structure, but also those younger orogenic events that certainly were making having an impact on that talc deposit out there. I mean, you, you, you say you speak to those things vaguely in the thesis, and we certainly pick that up from other authors as well, that it wasn't just the old stuff, but it's also seeing some younger events going on there. How did any of your thesis or all of your thesis help you and your team that you've been a part of with SM or Concho and all those guys, how are you using that to, to help make a difference for your company? Well, um, hopefully I can answer this well and not get fired. No, um, <laughs> no, I think the, just the fact, you know, the neat thing about my thesis is I got, you know, I did a lot of the thin section work. So I'm looking at these like microstructures you know, with the talc and the talc's being replaced by the tremolite, the tremolite's being replaced by the talc, you know, you have these veins of albite coming in, you have the, you know, trying to unravel all of this stuff and then like tie it back, look, reading regional papers, tying it back to regional work um, really helped, I think, as a petroleum geologist, you know, one of the, as you guys know, you, I mean, you kind of have to look at the geology of all, you know, at all different scales, right? And, uh, and so it's really helped because, you know, I, I was very fortunate when I was at Concho to be part of an exploration team under Chris Spies 
and was able to, you know, work regional work um, through the Midland Basin and a lot of that regional knowledge and having a kind of a regional understanding of the tectonics of Texas and the, and the timing and stuff, you know, I think has really helped in like how you correlate things, you know, when you're seeing unconformities coming in, especially tectonically enhanced unconformities like in the Midwood Campion, um, you know, and also like what's the timing on that, you know, like at the strong level, right below the wolf camp, you know, you see a lot of structures being built in, at that time, which then affects various thicknesses of other units. And, and then eventually you get into the point where the basin's quiet, tectonics are quiet, and you're just in a fill mode. And the nice thing about the Permian, and I think what made it such a, a rich thing is it got capped with an anhydrite across almost the whole basin and just kind of kept in the pressure, kept in the heat. Hell of a and, cap you know, rock, huh? Yeah. And so basically in, in kind of the tradition of Texas culture, I think the Permian Basin was basically barbecued, like slow smoked, like a brisket you know, for a long time. <laughs> not really high temperatures, not really low, just cooked in this oil window for a long time. Yeah. Um, and so made it really made it what it is. Right on. Okay. Well, I think we can slide into uh, your thesis work and get a little more specific with uh, with some of the things that you were seeing out there, some of these structures, some of the broader questions. And let's just, uh, this is kind of just an academic exercise almost uh, of the drill down for me. I'm just kind of listening in and, you know, Stan is technical advisor, been around the world <laughs> uh, and uh, done a lot of studying on talcs. And some of the interesting things with talcs that he's done in particular is uh, he's found carrageen in talcs several times. So there is something going on with a hydrothermal story here, and that's something that PBE Podcast is obviously investing in. What is going on with this hydrothermal alteration or this hydrothermal influence on these systems? We chalk it up as diagenetic alterations and kind of, well, maybe it happened during or after. You know, wait a minute. What if it had, like, what if this was all big, a much bigger, broader system? And uh, his, his experience around the world will certainly strum up some interesting correlations, I think, and some interesting ideas as we get started. Skips, you ready? Let's do this. <laughs> I will share my screen. You missed the uh, the jam in the in the beginning. Uh, we had a good time. What? Oh, dude, I've been. Dude. Uh, what was it? I've drew. Only I, if only I could get in the room, man. Gosh, damn it! Yeah, that's on me. That's on me. It's, it's all good. It's all good. But it was good jam. Good jam sesh. Oh, dude, it's. Uh, yeah, I'll send you the link, and you can. It, okay. it, it, yeah, it it got me all fired up for this show for sure. I just saw, I just came by too this morning, so I just saw it. Or was it maybe as late last night? Uh, okay, so this is uh, this is us just pulling it up straight from Geosphere, Geoscience World. Uh, I was going to ask if there's any other way to get this that you're aware of uh, besides just contacting you directly, Ben. Is there another way to get uh, get your hands on this paper? Well, I think you can download it directly from GSA. Okay. Yeah, you can literally just kick PDF right there. And yeah. yeah. You'll get it. Okay. So instead of reading it in that format that's on the website, uh, you guys want to jump into the PDF download? Yeah. That usually works a little bit better. You know, they designed Geosphere so you could read it on a screen and kind of flip through it. And the, uh, as they began to realize a lot of people were kind of just going to screen, you know, Googling stuff and whatnot. So, right. 
So that's why I kind of built out in this landscape format versus the, the normal portrait uh, way. Okay. I'll pull it up in an actual uh, yeah PDF viewer then so I can mess with the tools that allow us to, to zoom in. Where do you want to start, Ben? Uh, do you want to go down into a map? Or you want to go uh, into some text, just some general 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 comments about what happened here? Where do you want to go with this? Yeah, go down to the first uh, go down to the first figure with the the map and whatnot, and we'll just get people oriented. Um, yeah, perfect, perfect. Okay, so you see Van Horn, the city of Van Horn, and then you see I twenty kind of cuts up to the northwest. I ten. Yeah, I ten. Sorry, um, and then. It, you know, it bisects the Creso Mountain groups, and there's some really, uh, as you travel and you go there, right about where your mouse is is actually the uh, time zone. So you actually drop an hour going out that way. Um, but there's some great, great uh, road cuts that you can see. So if you're going about 85 miles an hour or <laughs> you're 10 and you're going about 110, uh, and you check it out, you'll notice that the, most of the outcrops are layered pink and green. And what the Carrizo Mountain Group is, these are the oldest rocks in Texas. Um, you know, the oldest surface rocks that we've seen. The oldest Precambrian rocks are actually buried yeah. up in the panhandle. Um, but these are the, you know, the oldest zircon we've pulled out of here was, I think, 1385 million years. So that's yeah, what, I was going to ask that. Yeah. That's yeah. all like outer tectonic belt, right? Like that, that's kind of the age range of that. Yeah. So they would put this in like the southern granite rhyolite you know, Province, yeah. Right. Okay. So is that, uh, are those mostly rhyolitic rocks? Yes. Yeah. Oh, they're metarhyolite and they're metarhyolites and um, basalts. And so there are mafix. It's a bimodal suite Correct. of things. And there was a, a, a nice little um, geology paper. It's like three pages long from a lady named Roberta Rudnick out of Sol Ross for her master's. She went on, I think, to be a professor at Harvard, um, but her master's was on this. And she said these were deposited in a, an extensional back arc basin. Um, and she looked at the chemistry of these uh, metarhyolites and metabasalts as a bimodal suite and said, yeah, they're, they're in the, deposited in a back arc basin. You cite her well, paper? Huh? You cite her paper in your references? Um, yes, I believe so. If not, it was in my thesis reference. Um, we ended up cutting a lot of references out on those. But yeah, she, uh, if you really, you know, if you're looking for a good paper on Texas, like the first real model of the Grinville in Texas, you look up Mosier um, GSA Bulletin 1998. Yeah. yeah, she went through everything that had been written at the time and cites it all. So anyways, what happened is you had these high-grade metamorphic rocks. There are some sandstones, like quartz aronites and stuff in here. There, and it, it was As you go south, so the metamorphic grade starts in yeah, the south, the higher, almost, yeah. So it starts away from the thrust to the south. And then as you go north, the metamorphic grade decreases. So it goes from an amphibolite um, to the, on the southern part of the Carrizo Mountain groups, where they, and then as you go north, oddly enough, the metamorphic grade decreases. Then it picks up a little bit along the main steroids thrust, um, shown just north of I-10. And then you're into these foreland rocks, which are about um, the Alamore, which is the blue 
swath pattern is a mixture of stromatolytic, shallow water carbonates and shallow water hypobisinal basalts. Um, and so you, uh, you know, that's got thrust over those. And those guys are probably green schist facies right along the thrust. And then they pretty much by the time you're like a couple kilometers on the north side, it's almost undeformed and very lightly metamorphosed. And so that's the, uh, so metamorphic grade decreases to the north, increases to the south. Hmm. So are there any dates on those basalts in the lower plate of the Sterowitz fault thrust? There are, um, out of some old field manuals, they, gosh, there was a Creso Mountain Group rhyolite that cut it. Um, I was looking up that date the other day. I think it was like 1180. Um, but then, you know, the, well, no, it was younger than that. It was 980 MA on the dike. Um, but the basalts, I don't know that the, the basalts have been dated. So the, the north, if you can see on the, on the foreland, the foreland's made up of the Alamore formation, which is just, is the, the lowest unit. That's the basalt and then the conglomerate with the phyllites in it. That was, and then there's an unconformity. And then you have this tumble down formation, which actually is kind of a unique formation that shows up only in what's called the tumble down mountain on the northeast side of the range. Right, that's up there to the this guy. right in there. Yeah. yeah, yeah. That is a that is a, an amazing syncline, and you can see this like Ordovician bliss sitting right on top of it. So you have this great example of a folded Precambrian angular unconformity with this flatline Ordovician bliss, and they've been mining the top on the syncline. So the syncline is actually thrusted. That's Edwards. Higher. Um, it's really cool looking. Yeah, go to Google Earth. It's a neat. There's a <laughs> Yeah. A couple old um, papers on, you know, just the geology. Uh, there was a ma whole master's thesis on just the geology of the Tumble Down Mountain. Didn't Edwards do um, a lot of his it, PhD work in there? Edwards did a lot on the geochemistry. The P the master's that actually talked about the structure was from, oh, you're testing my memory here, UT <laughs> Dallas, I believe. It was a young lady. I can't really, I'm not. I'm spacing her name. It was in the like early nineties. So you can see the, yeah. So you can see all these like white areas or the talc mines. Mm -hmm. um, and so that's the Alamore. And then the, where it gets reddish, the dark, dark red, that's the Van Horn sandstone. So let's see if you kind of zoom in, um, go up to the right. Tumbleberry. Yeah, there. It's going to be up in there. Yeah. Yeah. Actually go down South. You're too far North. Go South. Oh, stop. Okay. Do you see the little triangle? Yeah. Right. Yeah, kind of that arrowhead looking feature. Yeah. Right where your mouse is. That is the yeah, there and a little bit south where the mine is. That whole section right there is the tumble down mountain. Um, that's the syncline. And so, you know, the, the valley is actually pretty much down the axis of that syncline. And then to the right, yeah. So you can see they've been mining actually quite a lot of that talc. And that's a really cool area. And then you can see the mountains to the right are Ordovician Bliss Sandstone. Um, they kind of like span the Lake Cambrian to early Ordovician um, sand units. So you kind of have this really cool unconformity. It's a lot more uh, evident in 3D, but you can kind of see the, I think you can oh, yeah. see that. Is there any evidence that there's mineralization that gets from the Precambrian? up into the lower bliss section? You know, I walked that once 
And the bliss is really cool because it's a very clean sand with all these like scalithos. Right. I didn't see at the contact. I didn't see anything like that. Um, you know, the red Van Horn sandstone, which is like a mid Cambrian basal sock sequence unit was basically these alluvial fans coming off from this really messed up Precambrian surface. And they dumped out as these neat alluvial fans um, through this area. And I think in those, like I say, they, they mined at one point, they had some silver mines in there and they still, people still go out and prospect silver out of there. Is there um, copper with that, that also? Huh? Is there copper with that? Yes. Uh, yes. Um, what's the name of the, the big mine? There was a big mine there in the 20s and 30s. Um, and I think if you search through the BEG, they have a publication on that. Yeah, they do. But they, uh, but yeah, it's, uh, at one point it was one of the larger silver mines in Texas. And actually they drilled and like quarried down into it. Um, but then again, I think the silver is actually related to a lot of the volcanism that was about 35 to 42 million years. So as much younger silver just took advantage of a lot of the fractures um, that were that are present. Well, do they actually that. have a date on any of that? Um, on the minerals, on the metal the stuff that's, that's bliss hosted. Yeah. Yeah, so they did. There is a paper in 2014 that dated the some stuff out of the Van Horn, and that that's where they put it. Because when I was doing my thesis, everybody thought the Van Horn was Precambrian, and this paper came out while I was in the middle of my publication, so I had to add a line or two in there, and it puts it in the middle of the Cambrian, um, all the Van Horn. So you have this big unconformity because deposition um, of the Alamore and the tumble down and Hazel stopped. So the hazel probably was deposited as a syn tectonic unit, and it's the youngest Precambrian unit out there. And it, it was deposited probably 1080 to 980. And then, <coughs> excuse me. And then, uh, you know, you pick up the probably at 450, if I'm remembering right, is when you deposited the Van Horn sandstone. Yeah, there's a geologic map of the Tumble Down Mountain. So you have a big. Precambrian grapevine fall that runs through there, and then you have some talc around there, and then you have that unique tumble down mountain. And somebody, um, Mc, McLellan, who's the the kind of the godfather of the Grinville up in New York, his son came out and did his master's thesis on age dating that tumble down. Uh, very nice thesis. It's like thirty pages long because it's just age dating, and uh, is probably in the mid nineties. I think I, in my, in my actual thesis, I, I think I referenced it, but anyways, you guys have really been, uh, it's been like almost been more than 15 years since I had to review this. So, um, so doing the, a good job. Something interesting, the Franklin mountains are pointed out in that, in that map. And we're talking about Van Horn and, and this structural complexity that's in old, really old rocks. And it's not that far obviously from the Delaware basin. And my thoughts were the mineralization, the pathways of the fluid and the altering in the rocks. Are they overwhelmingly going in one direction or the other? And is that something that we also see in the subsurface as far as maybe the mineralization and, and how brine or oil is moving in the subsurface? But we brought up the bliss 
and uh and we got to do a field trip in the in the franklins and this thing which was the field trip guide was calling the bliss that's a big uh mine that of uh of a carbonate for limestone but this is all pre-cambrian red granite uh tin granite as stan called it you see this white band right here yeah that thing was being called an, an igneous injectite and it looked just like a sand we all walked up to it you you park right here this is the greatest walk i've ever done you park right here you go out into the precambrian it goes from a smooth precambrian total homogeneous and all of a sudden right at the top it's totally foobarred up you got huge pieces of quartzite in it and it's all tumbled and it's a bunch of structure and then bang on a line you're in the cambrian that's what this is and then what happens here that's really interesting is the matrix goes from a silica matrix at the bottom all the sedimentary structures and all the things that are happening in it are all preserved there's no real erosion in the rocks or in the outcrops that we're seeing and then at the top of it and i can't exactly point that out on this one but near where this injectite comes in, it turns from a silica matrix to a magnesium one. Bang. Oh. And then all of a sudden, this injectite comes in. Bang. And, <laughs> and then it gets really weird. There's definitely a big structural relationship between this mine thing that's happening and a bunch of karsting and these huge collapse features in the Ellenberger. Like it, this is a huge system and this injectite lays out and it just truncates into this complexity and it also truncates out towards the city of El Paso. It, it ends, goes away. It just pancakes out like that. And it's the, he was saying it was the bliss and it looks just like this, this beautiful sand. All the geologists that were on this trip, were all looking at it like, he goes, what kind of rock do you think that is? We're like, oh, it's a sandstone. And he's like, nope uh it's it's an igneous injectite and i was like what the curiosity just went through the roof you know what i mean oh, what oh is, that was weird what is i would have to make it out there said, what is that so anyway that that's cool uh i thought that was uh interesting somewhat of an interesting correlation of you know franklin mountains show an injectite igneous thing the bliss here is more they're thinking it's alluvial or it's like a more like uh you know standard or commonly interpreted sedimentary thing over in the van horns is what i'm picking up on but there's some contradictory there i think well the question is is there any commonality yeah but um you know that thing could be an applite if you want to make it igneous on the other hand it could be some kind of a high silica sand that would be an injectite from a udh ultra deep hydrothermal point of view right um <clears throat> back to this thing so i guess the question is do you see anything like that in the lower part of the paleozoic section in the van horn area not in terms of that injectite that I'm aware of. There are dikes and sills in the Carrizo Mountain group um, that are kind of, you know, give it that bimodal suite on the geochemistry of the, you know, the igneous rocks there. Um, you know, really in the Alamore, you know, you had these basalt flows, then you had like stromatolites and you kind of got into like carbonates and stuff. And I think that intermix of the, like, these precambrian carbonates with the basalts, you know, kind of gave it this like high magnesium, um, 
chemistry that, you know, really aided in the, when the metamorphism happened, really aided in the talc deposits. Right. Because um, the talc quality is the, the best talc quality. You know, if you go back and you read the old papers on the talc out here. Yeah, this is a, so this is one of those mines and you can see where I, you know, I labeled the steroids thrust and then that orange squiggly line is the foliation of the talc. That's how folded it is. And then the steroids wow. is folded. Um, and this actually used to be an underground mine and uh, there used to be some railroad ties coming out of the middle of the talc. It was kind of funny, but um, I never did figure out how deep that, you know, lake was. So this, is, this was coming out about the time the Lord of the Rings came out. So I was kind of expecting some giant octopus to come and eat me while I was out there by myself. <laughs> uh, is, is the district still producing talc or is it done? No, it's still producing. Um, they, you know, in the, by the 1960s, they'd produced uh, about 150,000 tons of talc. And most of that was used in ceramics. Um, and they didn't really sell it as a talc thing. They sold it as a, uh, oh, what do they call it? They called it something else. But anyways, and then they, they started going through at the thrush sheet and they were finding pure talc. Um, you know, typically the talc was graded in three different grades and it depended on how much carbonate and you know, other impurities you'd have. But like I said, I wish I had found that sample. Well, I think it's up at my office, but it was, a, a you know, you get these pink talcs um, that are just 100% pure talc and uh, zero impurities whatsoever. And so like the image on the screen um, is, you know, I'm, my little fingers there is pointing at the, uh, a fold of dolostone, as I call it, as a dolomite um, section, but it's in completely encased in probably right. ceramic talc. And <clears throat> excuse me. And so I, you know, and then you do a thin section of it and there's, you know, all sorts of weird stuff going on. You can see where the dull stone was being replaced by quartz. And of course, you know, in the, in the parlance of metamorphism, usually dolomite plus quartz plus some amount of water goes into a magnesium silica water based mineral, which is talc. Then you increase that talc, the talc goes into tremolite, which so you can see the TLC is talc, and then mm -hmm. the TR are these tremolite grains. Um, and some of the older papers said, oh, no, there's no tremolite in the alamore. And I'm like, well, clearly there is. And you can actually see where the tremolite's like altering to talc. And that shows you that it's a retrograde, so it's coming back down, and tremolite becomes unstable and it's converting over to talc. Um, and so it was like, yeah, there was a lot of like weird mineralogy going on. And, and after me, there was a PhD student who was working on this. Unfortunately, he never got to the point where they, uh, he was able to publish his results. But, um, yeah, so we, we were seeing, like, several phases of talc formation. But the best and the purest talc was right along that thrust sheet. Um, so we said there were hotter hydrothermal events. So this is a, a diabase dike inside a talc deposit in the, on the mine, on one of the mines. And you can see the dike itself is complexly folded. And these isocline, you know, part of it's an upright, you know, broader fold. And another one, you know, shown in, in figure B is an isoclinal fold. And what was throwing us off is, you know, you look at figure D. And like I say, if I go back and do this paper over, I'd switch C and D so they were matching. But you can see how much fluid was altering between what the original diabase dike probably looked like in C and then what it looked like in D after the fluids got a hold of it. 
And those are on the same scale. So it just completely obliterated a lot of the original, like all the, you'd see like original olivines, uh, various types of feldspars. And then they got down to this like super fine grain, sheared out mass um, in D. So your interpretation is this turned into this. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, the C was somewhat more well-preserved with more original structure. Um, and then you can see, you know, they're, like I say, that's the same exact scale of picture on those thin sections, same magnification. So, so yeah, I just, I really, uh, you know, you had a lot of fluid. So that's when we started realizing how much fluid was in there. And also you, when the, some of the Creso mountain group, I think I have a picture of it later in this publication that's exposed in the same mine. This is called the Rosa Blanca mine. It, uh, you couldn't tell the amphibolite dikes and sills from the rhyolite dikes and sills because of how much fluid it interacted much with the magnesium two. magnesium metasomatism there was, yeah. Exactly. And they actually have like slicken lines of tourmaline. And I had what? the XR on the tourmaline and the tourmaline was the uh, sodium rich variety called Dravite. Right. Um, and so you, there's a lot of tourmaline that we were finding in the Carissa Mountain groups and, and in some of the talcs right along the thrush sheet um, and stuff like that. So, so did you so have an albi? Did you have an albi dravite assemblage? Yes, actually, there are. Um, and I think I have a. I don't, did I put a picture in here? There is one in my thesis. There were a lot of veins of pure albi, which tended uh, to be late. Yes. Yeah, okay. I'm actually going to you got me on, because somewhere I have a, I had a, a, uh, what do you call it? Um, I had a table that said when the, when I thought the timing was going. Here, let's see if I can find it real quick and give you a, because there were, you know, what we were seeing, um, I was trying to, what I was trying to do is work out the timing on all the different veins and all the different replacements. Of yeah, that would be useful. Yeah, and I... Like I say, the, the my main point of my thesis was the structure. The secondary part was all the fluid flow and stuff. Yeah, so actually in my paper thesis, which was like just a few copies that exist, um, we have, yeah, the meta-rylates at albite veins cutting uh, through there. And they I, I did some Michelle Levy tests. You talk about my old petrography days, but. Um, <laughs> On the pledge? And it's like. It, it was pretty pure albite, if I remember. I was like... And member albite, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so I basically tried to... Let's see, where's the albite here? So I said that the first phase was your early quartz deposit, and then you somewhere in, you know, you picked up this alkali sodic deal, and at the very end was a carbonate slash quartz-rich kind of uh, fluid. As um, in so dolomite? I, yeah, so we saw a lot of dolomites, and we saw dolomites replacing some of the Creso Mountain Group and some of the Alamore kind of in the same breccia. And so that's why I, I, I put the timing down as when the Creso Mountain Group was in contact with the Alamore. Because basically, structurally, what happened is you started thrusting early on. There's like two orogenic events out here. And you started thrusting early in the Alamore, and the Alamore basically got to the surface and you had these thrust sheets that were actively eroded into the hazel. Well, the hazel has igneous class inside of it, but none of those igneous class match anything in the Creso Mountain group. 
Instead, what those igneous class do is they match that red bluff granite that um, Troy walked on and just showed you yeah, guys. And the, the Franklins, yeah. yeah. Exactly. Right. So, and the Crucial Mountain Group was still 20 miles south and buried and hadn't been exhumed yet. And so I was at, and so finally, one of the final phases, and it was an out of sequence thrust, was that stairwitch thrust, lifting it up and it locked the foreland and rolled the entire foreland. And then the foreland got dissected. Uh, by late stage transpression, or it was transpressional as the thrust, we were kind of always debating that. But basically you were thrusting and had a bunch of strike slip faults cutting through it. And those strike slip faults are the latest stage because they actually folded the steroids into these like complex dome and basin sort of structures. It kind right. of has this like relation. It was a nightmare to work out on the stereo. Well, like just that. looking at that <laughs> outcrop. But uh, did you ever see any class of talc in the hazel i don't think so that's interesting did you ever see yes. any talc cutting the hazel no not that i can read i didn't get fur you know because i most of my thesis was right along the thrust um but the thrust I itself cuts hazel juxtaposes hazel and alamore yeah and and so then that's filled with talc yeah exactly but this is all alamore you have right basalt alamore thrust up against alamore limestone along talc deposits so the, the, talc young, the youngest thing in there then would be the talc utilizing the thrust that juxtaposes exactly. carizo and alamore yeah exactly so you don't I know think, how so I, how much younger that talc is you know, if the talc is a metamorphic event, I would probably say almost 200 million years. Um, 200 million years? Yeah, so the Alamore was- Oh, 200 million years younger. Younger, yeah, younger. Okay, not 200 million years, absolute. Okay. Triassic. That's yeah. not Triassic. I was gonna say, whoa, what's going on here? <laughs> yeah, no, so the, Alamore so the Alamore was deposited at about 1285. The final stages of deformation out here where the steroids was in place, we know from Steve Grimes' thesis yeah. and stuff, we put between 1080 and 980 million years. So about 200 million years after the deposit of the Alamore. Okay, sometime after maybe 200 million is the talc. Yeah. Yeah, I'm not sure when that 200 million years, you know, you metamorphose, but you clearly had high magnesium limestones out here, dolomites, if you want to call them, or magnesites. Um, there's an old book out of the seventies on metamorphism by Winkler. And he, he talked about the thermal, you know, you have these magnesite bodies because of the ocean chemistry and atmosphere in the precambrian. The chemistry is above my head, but the, the thesis of his idea was that you had these pure magnesite bodies that were largely unstable and converted very quickly over to talc. Yeah. That's and, standard. You got to find yeah. silica somewhere though. And that's a problem. Yeah, and in this case, you had, you know, basalt sitting close by, and and so I think those probably added, you know, some of the aluminum and silica to that. Well, one final question on that topic. These mafic things that get magnesium metasomatized, um, do you, anybody come up with a protolith? You mentioned rhyolite, some of it, but if there's a mafic component in there, what is it? Anybody do any work to figure out what that was? 
So I believe the the Mafic sec, you know, um, yeah. So Gerard and a guy named Bourbon, you know, talked about these as being like hypabyssal basalt flows, um, and you know they had like potentially pillow basalts and other things like that in the Alamor. The ones in the Criso Mountain group to the south, um, those were in, usually intruded as like dikes and sills inside a metarylite. Anybody do any whole rock? Well, there's whole rock chemistry on the Carrizo, but what about this stuff that's talc-related as we're showing here? Did anybody get chemistry on that? No, no. Not that I'm aware of. I, Pretty trashed, huh? Okay. Yeah. Skips, you had a couple of questions or you were diving in there uh, in the middle of all that. Did, did, did some of that get answers, answered or what? Uh uh i mean yeah it got brought up which was good i wanted to ask as far as the timing was concerned like initially i know we we've gone way down the rabbit hole but i think it was figure five that when we were looking at that when we were talking about how uh you had this initial mafic dike that was then altered and like you had the scale exactly the same yeah that was uh, what i wanted to ask was is there any idea on the timing of that alteration but yeah, like you said, you were just still kind of putting all that together. Yeah. Well, you know, this is a from a structural standpoint, the the dike is folded and the mm -hmm. talc is axial planar to that fold. Um, so the talc either pre exist, you know, my guess probably pre That means it's pretty that. young. Yeah. Yeah. And so, you know, and probably as it was folding, it, you know, it was sitting in there on the, you know, probably form the talc probably formed during a lot of this um tectonism like i say there were two big phases you know out here um mm -hmm. kind of two pulses that we know of there's probably more and the metamorphism still in the crease about or in the uh in the alamore still probably could be worked out you know you only could do so much on a master's thesis yeah i was um, gonna say yeah it's you're, you're trying to get it done i understand that yeah that's yeah. definitely the priority okay. one other question um the dolomite is that post talc no, no, the, the dolomites, I always thought the dolomites were early and I think they were probably original. Um, so what's interesting about that on the dolomites, because as you go away from the thrust, the talc actually begins to pick up some original depositional features. In some of the mines, um, you could see hopper halite crystals that were encased and folded and sheared with the talc. Really? Um, and so, or you could pull out these dolomite nodules in the layering, in the bedding of the talc deposits, um, as you kind of went away from the thrust, you'd actually start getting sedimentary features, like protolith sedimentary features in the talc. Um, and like I say, there's a, <coughs> but then you're me. saying that the, the dolomite and the talc and these halite hoppers might be broadly related to the same saline fluid event or yeah, at least a, a sequence a, of that yeah i like i say, I, you know i would probably say that the the dolomite was original as it was folded then you brought in the you know brought in the fluids because i i should have i don't know i guess i didn't publish that table but you know I, I broke things out based on their phases of folding like f1 is your early then you yeah fold i can F1 see that that's that's sharon moser stuff Oh yeah, classic Mosier, right? Anyways, so <laughs> I, I didn't I didn't really put in um, 
kind of the alkaline sodic ones until about the F4 phase. So it was fairly late um, on that. Right. And then like axial plane, yeah. Yeah. So then the carbonates, uh, the carbonate quartz late stage fluid was probably your like F5, F6. And then you had an early quartz one that we think probably was the main driver for the talc, um, at least the first phase of talc formation out there. And that was probably F1 to F2. Um, and that you have these like preserved dolostones that are kind of encased in the talc that just didn't convert over for whatever reason, or the, the metamorphism wasn't as pervasive enough. Uh, real far field question. The dolomites that are in the Allenberger, do you think that those have any relationship at all to the dolomites that are down here in the basement, these, this younger fluid event? Any idea? You know, that's a, that is a good question because, you know, recently University of Kansas looking at like thermal maturities in Howard County because Howard County is a thousand feet shallower than the western side of the Midland Basin, but it has roughly similar thermal maturities. Um, University of Kansas, a guy named Bob Goldstein was saying that he thinks that there are a lot of like hot fluids that were coming up along Precambrian, deep Precambrian faults that helped with that thermal maturity. Um, I think that was a, like an Urtec paper I read maybe two years ago. So could, yeah. So could you bring magnesium up from the Precambrian and, and affect the, the Ellenberger? I mean, possibly, you know, we fluids are going all over the place. Uh, to be honest, that's just pie in the sky. I really have no idea. <laughs> but it, but it's not an impossible, there's no geology that, that, uh, falsifies that. Yeah, I don't think so unless, yeah, I mean, you, you, it's a good question where that magnesium comes from. Right? Yeah, it's a permissive For, speculation. Yeah. Okay, cool. You know, it's armchair geology, so who knows? <laughs> yeah, but permissive. Yeah. Okay. This is really, this is really good stuff. This has been great. Now, My you know what I, I would like to get from you is a, a piece of Van Horn talc, because I've got talc from all over the world, but I don't have it from Van Horn. You know if what? You, I think, I like I say, I can find you a piece. We'll get you a piece. <laughs> yeah. I would much appreciate it. Like I feel like you can just, yeah, if you're just driving by, I feel like you can just hop out of the car. No, you got to you get, get off I-10, unfortunately. Yeah. Yeah. You got to so slow down. It's a It'll, it's it's like the nicest part to like break it up before you know, like hop on I-10 and it's just sadness until you get to Midland. Yeah. Yeah. It's just like flat and nothing. Like right Next after Next time, Horn, let's go so. to a talc mine, Troy. Yeah. No, I'm down for that. There were seen. There definitely were. There's some just amazing yeah. stuff. I'd love to get back out there. Last time I went out there, I was on a trip with David Farrell looking at like geomechanic stuff for um, younger things and and he let me borrow one of the cars because this is an autoless trip. And so I drove out there and you can get up to the, the fence and somebody has actually dumped a bunch of like low grade talc along the side. So you can actually pick up some of the talc um, with like, yeah, a lot of impurities of dolomites and limestones and stuff in there. Well, that's so the geologically interesting stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Some, you know, and they, some people claim they've seen myelinites along for us. I never saw those, um, you know, but mm. The, the area that they claimed was kind of off limits to me at the time, so I never actually got in there. A myelinite is a uh, metamorphic feature. No, it's yeah, it's a tech, it's a texture 
um, that shows shearing, right? So you, okay. typically what happens, you have these porphyr class or bigger chunks of feldspars and they can, and you can, um, get a sense of motion is what we were hoping to get off of them. Yeah. We, yeah. Can tell you. yeah you see them in the, the Catalinas, no right? Like, yeah, that. you see those rolling myelinites. Yeah. It's like that, uh, cataclastic like deformation. Yeah. Yeah. There's a real good one there over there on the right. Yeah. That uh, top right. Yeah. Yeah. You can Catalina see like, them actually rolling. That's classic. Oh, don't, don't say that word. Don't say that word. <laughs> <laughs> Did I trigger somebody? <laughs> uh, the, yeah, the metamorphic. Yeah, it's the Stan actually did a ton of work as far as almost, I don't want to say disproving that fact, but it actually wasn't extension. It was actually shallow subduction. Oh, well, that's that all that. that now you're getting into some editorial opinions coming from this chair, but um, yeah, all that. <laughs> but, I mean, imagine, ima but I mean, when you see in the pegmatites with the S bands and the she spheres and the tigmatic folds, I mean, that can only be done in a compressional environment. And the timing of all that, like, doesn't coincide with extension. It's compression, mm. right? Well, yeah. I mean, the greater context, but, but all that texture, that beautiful thing on the right, and actually the middle one um, that Troy's highlighted, is establishing simple shear. And, mm -hmm. and, and that one is clearly directed to the right, top yeah. to the right. The top goes, this arrow it's, goes it's that It's rolling. Way. Yeah. yeah. It's rolling. And then yeah. the bottom's going to the left. Yeah, and the one in the middle you've got highlighted is the same sense. Same picture, yeah. Mm -hmm. In fact, I wouldn't yeah. be a damn bit surprised if that wasn't from the Catalinas. That looks like a spitting image of the four-range nice stuff. Mm -hmm. So there's a, a granite countertop that's actually a myelinite glacial deposit from Brazil. It's called Cygnus granite. Yeah, um, what? I actually got it placed in my house. It has some of the best myelinite textures you've ever seen. What? It's great. Cygnus granite. Well, I'm, I'm, I'm well set on that, but I don't have a talc dolomite from uh, Van Horn. Uh, now, oh, my God. That's beautiful. Sorry, I just pulled up photos. That's a great choice for a countertop, by the way. <laughs> yeah. So if you actually get it with the leather finish instead of the high finish, it shows up <laughs> even more. <laughs> We're doing interior decorating here. So hey, as as a geologist, like that's something you take pride in is like right. a good countertop. It's like, yeah, hey, if I'm gonna take the time, I want it to be something cool that I'm gonna like get if I'm like cooking at all, I'm gonna get lost looking at my countertop. Yeah, and it's always a great icebreaker no matter where you go, anywhere, any oh, restaurant, yeah. any house. You go, you know where your granite's from? And they, most of the time, yeah. they're like, what? <laughs> the best part, though, no is idea. like, yeah, if you go to any geologist home, it's like, oh, I know exactly where this is from. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> now, one one final question, then I'll probably shut up. Um, that Lano deformation front, that thing has a lot of interesting bell rings for us, but um, do you think that could be a, a major conduit for fluids coming up from the basement, getting up into the Ellenberger, et cetera? Yeah, I don't, yeah, I would think so. Um, Cause you know, depending on where you put that Lano front, it does cut right through the, the middle part of the Permian basin um, as it cuts down and, you know, yep. some of the, Seismic lines we've seen along there, you can actually almost see like full, like, you know, fault related, fault bin folds on there yep. down. 
but then a lot of it's been penny plane on the seismic. And so then, you, you know, you can see these things that have been like cut off. Um, I know that the Atlanta deformation front, at least in this is mapped off, you know, magnetics on a, on a regional level. And so you typically, you see all the deformation and Sabidian to Midian mapping and, you know, kind of all that deformation ends. You know, the Grinville is a big orogenic vent that goes all the way up into Canada. Right. And mm -hmm. Horn is the only exposure of the foreland in all of the Grinville. Um, and that's why, you know, it was kind of, uh, kind of fun to, to work on this, but yeah. yeah. So, but yeah, you, a... oh, that's a cool map. <laughs> <laughs> we might give you one as a souvenir. Yeah, no, this would be awesome. So your cursor right there where the Texas zone goes through. And obviously, mm -hmm. Mulberger really likes the Van Horn area because he's a big fan of the Texas zone, and Van Horn was one of his type localities for it. But you'll see that mm -hmm. northeaster we got in there. This thing? Yeah, that, that's your so-called deformation front. Your Yano deformation front. And yeah. you can see we're working that all the way through the car. I don't know, Texas... Permian Basin is down. Where am I at here? Am I losing it? I'm losing it. This is yeah. zoom. No. no, I'm right. That's it. Yeah. yeah. That's it. Yeah. Nakazari slab yeah. tear. <laughs> yeah, we call that the Nakazari slab tear. And just just for giggles, what those slab tears are, tears in the downgoing subducting slab. But we think that they were originally influenced in terms of their location because, uh, because that goes back to when the Pacific and Atlantic basins began their spreading history, but the, those were where the big cracks are in the oceans were uh, ultimately influenced by what was going on in the continents. So, so your uh, Yano uh, front is a beautiful example of a, a pre-existing control of what would become a slab tear later on. Oh, yeah, I hadn't zoomed out on it that far. Yeah, that makes our speculation on the Dolomites look tame. <laughs> <laughs> now, the the first the Grinville, in your opinion, based on more than just the Permian and what we're talking about here regionally across North America, you think that's a flat subducting tectonic event? It definitely had a flat subduction history because um, there are. If I think you go into the um, Yano uplift and and uh, Ms. Mosier would be the authority on this. But I think there are paraluminous granites described there. Mm. And the um, granite in the Franklins is definitely a red paraluminous tin granite. That's right. So usually you don't get those without having crustal melting, crustal which requires melt. a flat subduction hydration of the crust to do that. So, yeah, and you would have done that off on either side oh. of different slab tears at this particular time. So yeah, there's a, a pregame warm-up for the Cordilleran subduction zones going on in Grenville time. Hmm. Troy, scroll down to the last uh, table. The last, uh, there should be one more figure. Oh, that's I weird. think that is the last one. That one? No, there's you have the table. I, it's on the uh, what is this? The like in the in the geosphere. 
Yeah. Uh, and that's like the that table that you were t- uh, discussing as far as the timing of the F1. Oh, we just uh, flipped F2. by a table. What was that? Yeah. Go back to the uh, one more over. And then. Uh, that's the no. PDF that I just downloaded. Yeah. yeah. Oh, no, 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 no. Don't download the PDF. Like stay on the. Ah, this guy. And then scroll to the bottom of the figures. Yeah, this is how I've been keeping along. Yeah, bang. Mm-hmm. Yeah, okay. this is yeah, structure. I actually a graph of this. Mm-hmm. But uh, you didn't fold the mineralization into this, though. It's a structure thing. Let's, yeah, I think I, well, oh, I tried yeah. to do that, I think, with the description of the, uh, the foliations and then maybe some of the tectonic significance, but it doesn't look, I don't see where it, Discusses any of the uh, fluids. Yeah. There's a little bit. You have an S2, you've got something going on. Yeah. Period of talc mineralization. Yeah. 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 We thought it was very early because, like I say, then you heated it up more and you got some of the tremolite coming out. But then a lot of the tremolite grains that we were seeing very close to, we actually were finding tremolite inside the carbonate matrices on the um, subsequent alamore thrust. But then we were seeing them. Um, the really big ones, like along the thrust itself, the alamor- the uh, steroids thrust. And a lot of those guys had tails that were converting back to talc. And so you could see talc going to trim light and trim light going back to talc. Um, so you had retrograde, which could have been quite late. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, that could have been, you know, those, that retrograde one could have been all the way back into like F6 time. You Correct. Know? But, so that's your 200 million year younger than... So that's yeah. your, your 800 event, 800 to 700. Roughly. Yeah, because I, yeah, I I mean, like I say, the, you know, Sharon and I um, presented a uh, combined, I don't know, GSA abstract where she talked about the timing. Because really the, the Lano uplift, when they see deformation out in like Enchanted Rock area or Inks Lake really, um, they're seeing that as being much earlier and deeper crustal deformation. This is upper crustal and later. So she called it basically, you know, the Grenville in Texas is a diachronous event. Well, um, yeah, but it's also occupying an exceedingly long period of time, like almost 300 and 350 million year. That's the yeah, entire actually, Paleozoic. <laughs> yeah, basically, you opened up the entire Atlantic during this time frame. <laughs> if you if you go that's, to where they've ripped up the, the um, Grenville and the East Coast now, they've packaged three orogenies into there that were all broadly considered Grenville. Yeah, you have the early Ellesmerian. There's a middle one I can't quite remember right now, and then there's the main Grenville. Hmm. Yeah, and so there's a paper that ties the orogenies out here with the one up in um there and it's it's a the the master student was ut dallas he focused mostly on the hazel formation he wrote a really really good paper um it's called so callahan and sogard or sogard and callahan sogard was the professor and he ended up um passing away but the, the callahan david callahan was the master student and they yeah they were saying this was a transpressional basin because it was a long narrow basin deformation was limited and then they talked about the hazel and they have a good depositional environment for the hazel formation 
that's a good paper worth reading. It's a, and I think it's cited in here. Yeah, no, we're just skimming the top of what you did, which is really good stuff. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I showed this uh, when I showed this figure to Sharon Mosier. She had me end up drawing a bunch of three D images for her other master students. Um, <laughs> so was, the only compliment I got from her, she was great to work with. But she was like, I brought this to her, and she's like, "Oh, you can surprise me sometimes." So, <laughs> <laughs> but uh. Oh, so anyways, yeah, yeah, this was my model, basically, where you had, you know, the steroids in A was deeply buried, and you had this early silica stuff. So all the faults that are red, those are actually fault planes, and then black is the, the ones related um, to the steroids, the Creasa Mountain group. So you can see the thrusts in the Alamore that developed the hazel formation. And then as you went down, you developed a a middle phase with this alkali rich fluids where you get the like the trend lights and other stuff. Um, like a lot of sodium rich stuff. And then, right. So then it, C it, is uh, was, quite late. Yeah. That would be yeah, late dolomite. Okay. D. And then in D and what's the red in D? Huh? What's the red stuff in the D cross section cartoon? Um, those are the pre-existing fault planes in the Alamore. They were pretty deformed. The red. Okay. Yeah. These are all just fault planes that show you, you know, I was just saying. The, yeah. The ones yeah. I, okay. I see what you're doing. Okay. Yeah. Okay. It's just that continued deformation from, yeah. Yep. Like you go from C. Yeah. To but it's not, not mineralization. Your, your cap on that is the mm -hmm. blue. Okay. Yeah. I imagine there probably was mineralization along there, but that was kind of <laughs> about as far as I got. I was going to say it's so foobar. I mean, I'm sure you can like, go so nitty gritty yeah. each one of those little sections would give you something different uh, my dad showed up in the field to help me and he looked at it and he said you know what just write something up nobody's gonna prove you wrong <laughs> <laughs> well he's yeah so messed up. But probably good advice anyways the uh <laughs> so i actually had bill mo bill molberger showed up to my thesis defense um which was a hundred oh, times awesome. easier than this interview and the only, the, he is the only person who made a comment and he said, wow, those rocks are really screwed up. <laughs> <laughs> well, he spent a lot of time on that area. Um, he's yeah. not around anymore, is he? No, no. Unfortunately, he, he passed away. You know, I was right at that time frame when I was there where you had this like older generation of geologists that were in their 80s that still showed up to work. So like the, the, the real great work um, on this area was done in 1953. Um, by the famous Philip King and Peter Flan. Oh, yeah. PB I've King. heard of him. Oh, yep. yeah. The yeah, they have a great map on this. I have the publication, um, mm -hmm. and it's, it's worth reading. It's funny because Philip, you know, because Peter Flan, who ended up becoming president of UT, he did all the work on the Crusoe Mountain Group, and then uh, PB King did it on the steroids and the shallow stuff. Well, in the publication, he admits that he lost a lot of the samples. I <laughs> wasn't able to do a lot of the thin section work. Um, but anyways, I, I ended up running across Peter Flan, who was in his 90s uh, when I was there, and telling him I worked, you know, I worked out in the, uh, I was working out there and reading his, his work from like 50 years earlier. And so he was a very nice guy. In, in your experience, uh, Ben, does... Does it seem like the subsurface of the Permian 
the mineralization or maybe even the the way the reservoirs seem to put themselves together vertically and horizontally do you see any relationship between that in general with what this diagram in C is showing as as kind of this where you see structural complexity and specifically maybe a thrust flat like this happening and you see stacked mineralization horizontally it's coming up similar structures uh is yeah, there that's is a very good point is there a relationship yeah. there um i think if i understand your question there probably is i have you know looking mostly at well logs you know it, it'd be really hard to say that you know the only thrust that you see along in the midland at least on the midland basin side is along that central basin uplift right where you have like parks Pegasus field is an old ellenberger field that was thrust um these would be very subtle in the seismic very subtle move you know up and then flattens off uh in the subsurface uh, that that i've noticed anyway well in you know, the we really, so i don't know about the mineralization because you really i think probably have to take core a lot do a lot of fmi work and i've only taken a, like a little bit of core and i did see a lot of we took some core even as shallow as the middle sprayberry and intersected a bunch of vertical fractures that were all um that were actually all cemented in. And we actually found carriage fractures um, in the wolf camp where you're, you know, you actually fractured and it was filled with some sort of bitumen or carriage. Right. Oh. Um, that was That's, kind of fascinating. I don't they have were, a problem with that one. Let's look yeah, for more of those. But, <laughs> but in terms of your field work here, you're showing a thrust flat in a Sterowitz thrust. Did you ever notice whether the talc mineralization or the dolomite quartz mineralization uh, thickened in the flat areas versus when you got into the steeper parts of the thrust? You know, I okay, to answer that, yes and no. Um, the talc deposits are actually like, they come in, they, they do actually come in as pods. They thicken and thin throughout the whole area. Hmm. And they probably are related actually to where that thrust is actually folded and then the talc actually probably squeezed in on the area because it was being used as a decomont and as a like, you know, as you're- Right, yeah, you want to use it yeah. as a mechanical weakness. But do you see a exactly. greater uh, abundance of lenses in the flat areas of the thrust when you reconstruct it or in the steeper parts? You know, to be honest, I did not do much on the terms of constructing it on the flat part of the deal. That was purely imagination. So, okay. <laughs> uh, we, you know, we, so key, you know, Peter or um, PB King actually put that thrust sheet. This is basically a kind of a rendition of his old map. And I geo referenced that thrust and he was like spot on <laughs> where that thrust was, where it's dashed. Cause that's where they basically put in a lot of the open pit talc mines out in this, like just alluvium. And then they went through the alluvium and they hit the thrust, got into the talc right underneath. So they hit Carissa out group. Then they got into the talc. Right. That was a prospect criteria. Yeah. yeah. And some uh, economic so, geologist just walked across that dash line that PB yeah. King made. <laughs> <laughs> Pretty much. It was, it was a remarkable how accurate he was for not having much data and not spending that much time. Oh, um, so but yeah, like you do see it come into lenses and pauses. It's structural relationship to to the actual geometry of that fault. Um, I, I toyed around with it. Never ended up putting it in my thesis. It never got to a point where I was really comfortable with it. 
what were you leaning towards? I was probably saying that I think that the talc actually probably squeezed in and moved as you were doing the strike slip, late strike slip motion and uh, following the thrust. So that, a lot of that in that block diagram C, then a lot of that mineralization was coming in during the late strike slip. Yeah, it possibly could be, um, you know. And was that left slip? Very, very well. No, it's right slip. It's, he has right slip right on slip. those. Yeah, because in, in that that line, right? Yeah, right. That that, that would fit a right that slip. would fit a uh, northwest southeast compression. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah and I think that when I got the Lake Grenville, yeah. you know, they basically uh, I think it was out in Kazakhstan or somewhere where they had some of these strike slip motions, and in between them, they were seeing you know all the things were turning into these domes and basins. And basically what happened is you'd have a right lateral and then you change stresses or whatever and you'd get left lateral almost uh -huh. along the same point. Yep. And they were calling it like, yeah, some kind of inverted strike slip. Yep. Um, Overprinted tectonics. I thought that was pretty cool. I thought that was really fun, man. I, I enjoyed getting to hear your perspective on some stuff, Ben, with, uh, with how things uh, are going from the transition of Concho to ConocoPhillips and how that all went. I thought that was fascinating information and just, uh, you know, just some insight, I guess, on on how that goes for someone in your position with your experience and stuff. I, I thought that was great and I appreciated the time. I really did enjoy my time with you today. Well, thank you guys for having me. I mean, you've probably read this thesis now more than I have. Um, <laughs> so I'm definitely glad you weren't my thesis defense i don't know if i would have passed but um anyways this has been fun i appreciate it cool all right well uh we'll see you at the, one of these conferences coming up i i guarantee you we'll work our way there one way or another hopefully we can do a show or bring in the mayor again whatever it takes uh have some fun in midland and uh and see you at the southwest section show in may that's that's certainly a goal oh yeah all right great see you ben bye bye skips take care Later.